Coming up on Stu Does America, I'm going to ask a question, be honest about it. How many of you tuned in hoping I was just going to drink fish tank cleaner? Sorry to disappoint, but I'll pretty much do anything for ratings, so you never know when it's going to happen. More than uh, 3.8 million more unemployed this week. Uh, It's the fifth worst week in history, just behind last week, the week before that, the week before that, and the week before that. So we're doing fantastically. And yet Chris Cuomo somehow remains employed. It's just insane. Subscribe on YouTube. Uh, Make sure when you're on YouTube, you click the little bell and you get the little all all videos subscription thing there because then you'll be alerted every time we do something new. Plus, rate and review the podcast uh, everywhere you can. It's great. You know, whatever. It's not a big deal. Just just type it. That's it. Go to blazetv.com slash stew to subscribe to Blaze TV. It's very important for conservative voices to have a, a place to, to go so we can communicate with you and it makes our lives a lot easier and it makes the country that much stronger. America. Use the promo code STU. Uh, make sure you use the promo code STU because that's how they know you like this stupid show. Plus, you get 30 bucks off, which is fantastic. I told you I would get a haircut uh, with a knockoff Floby on the air if I could get to 25,000 YouTube subscribers. But I'm thinking I'm going to act like the media with Tara Reid and act like it never happened. Stu does America. I don't know if you're like me, but uh, when I woke up this morning and read the news about a promising study on the drug remdesivir, I went immediately to my fish tank and looked around for something, anything to ingest. Here's Dr. Fauci, or the big Fauci, as I like to call him, talking about the results. The data shows that remdesivir has a clear-cut, significant, positive effect in diminishing the time to recovery. This is really quite important for a number of reasons, and I'll give you the data. It's highly significant. If you look at the time to recovery being shorter in the remdesivir arm, it was 11 days compared to 15 days. And that's a p-value for the scientists who are listening of zero. 0.001. So that's something that, although a 31% improvement doesn't seem like a knockout 100%, it is a very important proof of concept. Because what it is proven is that a drug can block this virus. That's really great news. Uh, The study doesn't show that we have a silver bullet or a cure, but it does seem to cut the death rate of patients with serious symptoms from COVID-19. That's great news, right? The media sure thinks so. Not so much because people might die a little bit less frequently, but because the drug was not hydroxychloroquine. Because if it was hydroxychloroquine, then Trump might get credit. And that is much worse than a few extra thousand people on ventilators. The Washington Post highlighted this very common line of analysis with this piece from uh, Philip Bump. Trump and Fox went all in on coronavirus silver bullet, but maybe the wrong one. Ah, you see, Trump was telling everyone uh, and he was going to be everyone was going to be saved by hydroxychloroquine. But actually, it's remdesivir that made a difference in the study. What a moron. Now, there's a little problem with this analysis, though. Because in the very same press conference where Trump introduced hydroxychloroquine to most of the world, he also introduced a little something called remdesivir. And honestly, the only reason I remember that he mentioned it during that press conference was the way he pronounced it. Because, you know, it was the first time the guy's saying it. And uh, the president went with like the high class French pronunciation remdesivir. 
There are promising therapies produced by Gilead, and that's uh, Remdesivir, Remdesivir. And that's a drug used for other purposes that's been out and said very good results for other purposes, but it seems to have a very good result having to do with this virus. Remdesivir. Remdesivir. I like that. It was like classier. Voulez-vous coucher avec moi? Remdesivir. I remember when that old road, uh, Rolls Royce kind of pulled up in the country next to the other Rolls Royce and pulled down the window. And then the one rich guy said, excuse me, do you have any remdesivir? And then the other rich guy says, but of course. And then he speeds off. And I think there's like a like an older like hick guy that like gets some out of control American. And he says, can you please pass the hydroxychloroquine? That's how I remember it, at least. I've run out of things to watch on Netflix that I've been taking in a lot of random 80s commercials, so you'll have to forgive me. You also remember that this Trump conference uh, that he was doing, this happened afterward uh, when a man uh, died. Um, that was a big deal, if you remember. He ingested fish tank cleaner, which had chloroquine phosphate in it, something that does have a similar name, but is not the same thing. Hmm, how does that work? Now, Donald Trump, of course, did not tell anyone to ingest fish tank cleaner. In fact, he didn't tell anyone to ingest the medication hydroxychloroquine. He listed off a few drugs that showed some promise, but the media went insane anyway, claiming that essentially Donald Trump killed this man. He should have known that these words have meaning and hyping these unproven drugs has just cost someone his life. I have a different view. Even if Donald Trump spent three hours every day at a press conference telling the entire country directly to consume any chemical in their house that cleans a fish tank, that appropriate death toll of that whole scenario should be zero. And no offense to the guy who died, but you know, the amount of national news stories written about this death should also be zero. The only reason it made news at all is because the NBC a family of news companies found a path to bashing Trump. Trump could say it is, you know, basically pretty much a cure. What would be your message to the American public? Oh my God, don't take anything. I don't believe anything. Don't believe anything the president says and his people because they don't know what they're talking about. Weird attitude to have right after your husband's died, and it's something that you helped along with if it's unintentional. Now, this story goes from oddly sort of sad local story to big time national crisis because the president is now responsible. But if you're in the media, doesn't the story seem a little too perfect? Isn't it a little suspicious? Is there any part of you? that thinks that it's a little doubtful that some couple would just start guzzling fish tank cleaner because the president mentioned a promising medical study. Certainly sounded shady to me, and apparently also to Elena Goodwin of the uh, Washington Free Beacon. She showed that the victim and his wife were both Democratic donors, including specific donations to Hillary Clinton and a relatively obscure left-leaning pro-science organization called the 314 Action Fund. Would this make you a little suspicious? I mean, it made me suspicious. Someone who donates to Hillary Clinton is just going to take Donald Trump's word as gospel? 
And someone who supposedly supports good science doesn't even check the Internet to see if the fish tank cleaner is the same as the medication. What an idiot he must be, right? Except that doesn't all seem to be true, according to the people who knew him best. Quote, what bothers me about this is that Gary was a very intelligent man, a retired mechanical engineer who designed systems for John Deere in Waterloo, Iowa. And I really can't see the scenario where Gary would say, yes, please, I would love to drink some of that koi fish tank cleaner. One of his uh, close friends told the Beacon. Um, It just doesn't make any sense. And I got to say, that's kind of how I feel, too. Other friends said that his wife was verbally abusive to him in public, destroyed his possessions and was charged with domestic abuse against him. Another friend noted that she regularly prepared vitamin cocktails for him. Wouldn't this make you suspicious of this story? Blaze TV's Steven Crowder found it a little weird, too. So he decided to call the NBC reporter and help out. And obviously you guys do, uh, do great journalism there at NBC News. So I wanted to know if, if you had discovered, if you came upon this information or can confirm that she is a Democratic donor who gave to Hillary in 2016 and repeatedly throughout her yeah, I, I don't know any. I don't know anything uh, that's not even relevant to the story, quite frankly. Well, isn't and it, isn't it relevant because she said that she did it because Trump told her to? And there are multiple sources here that show she was virulently anti-Trump as an activist for a long time. So it seems peculiar that she would all of a sudden decide to take medical advice from Donald Trump when she also gave to uh, pro-science, anti-right-wing, anti-science ideology, uh, as it's stated here, uh, nonprofits. Okay. Do you, do you, I mean, is, do you have a question for me? I mean, this sounds like it's your story. Well, I, I am asking if you knew this when you posted the story, because it seems like it would be pretty relevant, no? That someone went out there saying no one should yeah, trust no, President I, Trump. I think, I think, and she's that, a, I think that you I think that you have a, a specific story that you're trying to tell. And that's totally cool. No, see, I think that you did. It's your story. You can take it. I don't I don't want the credit. I just want to make sure the truth is out there and I can send you all of this evidence. If, if you would, I think that you have a story to tell, and I wish you good luck. I think you have the truth story. to tell I, here, I, I and I would like to provide it to you, I, NBC I News. Do you understand I, that this is the definition of I fake news at this it. point? I can provide you evidence right now that she was. Oh, so rude. I can't believe she would hang up on someone trying to help like that. Manners. Authorities apparently did find all of this a little interesting. They contacted the Free Beacon to get the tapes of the conversations and are looking into the incident. It hasn't officially been called a murder yet, but it is under investigation. I know I found it suspicious from the beginning. You probably found it suspicious, too. The Washington Free Beacon found it suspicious. Steven Crowder found it suspicious. Given the details, who wouldn't? Apparently, NBC News didn't. Neither did anyone else in the entire mainstream media. Why? Because this random guy and his possible murder filled a hole that needed filling. The media needed a story to target Trump that day, and this was it. A few weeks later, they would latch on to a story that claimed calls to poison control had increased. Yes, it was almost immediately debunked, but that didn't matter either. These stories serve their purposes. Everyone moves on, and no consequences ever occur for those involved. When you start your coverage with what you believe is an incontrovertible truth that Donald Trump is not only involved somehow in every single story, but that he is always the ultimate villain, 
you physically cannot get the story right. This is our media today, and I don't think it's changing tomorrow. Makes you just kind of want to sit back and ingest some fish tank cleaner and call it a day. I know I mentioned uh, fish tank cleaner there. That does not mean you should ingest it. That's not a good idea for whatever problem you're having. Don't ingest fish tank cleaner. Do something good for your health. If you have problems with pain, inflammation is likely the root of it. Uh, Back pain, neck pain, shoulder pain, leg pain. Inflammation is probably why you suffer with achy and painful joints and muscles. So, You leave it untreated, what's going to happen? Well, it's going to cause potentially permanent damage, but it's really going to make you at least very uncomfortable. Pain relievers and topical creams, you know, they don't really treat the problem. They mask it. Uh, A lot of people have just kind of given up. If this is hitting you every day, you may have just thrown your hands up and said, I'm just going to have to, this is my life now. I just have pain all the time. You don't need to be that way. Omega XL goes right to the inflammation. It's backed by 30 years of research. Omega XL is a powerful natural supplement that helps reduce pain due to inflammation while it promotes healthy joints and increased mobility. There's nothing like it in the world. It's much, much better for you than fish tank cleaner. That I can guarantee. Right now, uh, staying healthy is on everybody's mind. So here's another reason to take Omega XL. Shows that it can help your uh, your immune system uh, give a healthy response. That's great news too. Uh, It also means Omega XL can help your natural immune system protect you over all sorts of things. Here's a uh, special offer to get you started. Order now and you get your second bottle absolutely free. For information, visit OmegaXL.com. OmegaXL.com slash stew. OmegaXL.com slash stew. Or call 800-844-4888. That's 800-844-4888 for Omega XL. All right, we're about to just shovel data at you. That's it. We're just going to shovel COVID data at you for a couple of blocks here. I want to start with better news and then we'll get into the crappy news in a minute. So you can kind of like, you know, you're getting close to the weekend. Maybe if you're listening to this on Friday, you can just listen to this block and then turn it off. Um, but I think we have some good news here with Aaron Cullen, his staff writer and I guess CEO of The Blaze is of what course. he's only off the air, um, which I, I hadn't heard. But Well, they, that's a new promotion. We're breaking that on your show. I thought I'd do that. Paper. Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, congratulations. Don't tell Glenn. Uh, oh, okay. Um, so you've been going over and doing a lot of writing at The Blaze about uh, all this data, a bunch of interesting things that have developed. Um, the antibody test, I think, is something that has given me hope for a while because, I mean, first of all, everyone, it's one of those things. I really hope I had that disease. You know, it's a weird yeah, thing to hope right. for. I hope I already got over this yeah. thing. Yeah. <laughs> we, Jason Buttrell was in here the other day. He had to, one of these tests, an antibody test. And he took one? Yeah, he was very excited to take it because yeah. he, was, he was sure, as everyone <laughs> is, that they had COVID-19 in like January. I, think, I don't think he got it, no. unfortunately. No. Um, so disease-free, very sad. No. Maybe next time. Um, these studies are interesting. I, I'm trying to figure out what they mean. It seems like there is a, uh, certainly in New York, they're saying about 21%, I think it is, of people they believe may have had um, the disease. That's in New York City. 14%, I think, is the state. Uh, over in California, the studies are a little weaker, it seems like to me, and it's only 3 or 4%. Uh, what are we supposed to take from these studies so far? I think the safe thing that you can take from it is that more people have had it than we know in the confirmed numbers. That's an obvious takeaway, yeah. is that we have this confirmed number that gets reported and stacked on, but that number probably only represents a small number of the infections. And the reason that's encouraging to some people is that they say, okay, well, maybe the death rate isn't 3 to 5%. Maybe it's 0.5% or something like that. And we don't know. Yep. But it gives you a little bit of hope that, okay, maybe this is something that 
we can work with. That's a weird way to say it, but yeah. something that we can work with. And so it also points to the idea that maybe the start date that we have for when we think this thing started, the curve or, you know, mm -hmm. the, the original date, yep. that maybe that's a little bit earlier than we thought. Mm -hmm. And that's important just to know, you know, what we're looking at in terms of where the trajectory of it is. Where are we on that trajectory? You know, we found out that there were some deaths in California that happened weeks mm -hmm. before the ones that, that we thought were the first ones in Washington. And so we're still learning as we go. So it's hard to draw too many like hard, broad conclusions from it, but it does sort of trend in a direction of saying, okay, let's, let's not take what we started with, what we made these decisions with first and see this as the locked in facts of the situation is kind of fluid as we start learning more about it. Yeah, and I think it's, you know, it's, it's interesting because the shutdown is never a good idea, right? Like no one ever wants to get to that point. I think our issue was we're having outbreaks all over the country. We have no testing. Yep. We have no idea what's happening. Um, and at that point, you have to stop and get some more information and, and suppress this down, which we've done. Look, mm -hmm. we we've we've we ate a six week uh, a six week delay here in our lives, um, and obviously that delay can't last forever. Starting to open up a little bit here in Texas. Georgia's seeing a little bit of light as well. There's a few states around the country that have plans now. Even some of the states with bad breakouts have plans to, to come out of it. Mm -hmm. One interesting point I've, I've seen floated around, I want to get your take on it, is Wisconsin. Now, they, they basically screwed up massively in, yeah. <laughs> with their government and yeah. could not figure out a way to delay the election mm -hmm. properly. So they just kind of had to go ahead with it. Uh, and some people warned that there could be a huge breakout because of it. We're not really seeing that, are we? We're not. And I was one of the people when that happened, I kind of looked at it and said, maybe that's probably not a good idea. Yeah. I was not one of the people that said, oh, just go out and do whatever. Mm -hmm. Seems like a bad idea to bring people out in those closed containers. You know, you've been to vote. You go yeah. into this building with 100 people in there and you're standing in line next to each mm -hmm. other. Seemed like a bad idea. But what we're seeing is after what's been two and a half weeks or so since that election, we haven't seen a big spike in Wisconsin. And hopefully that's making it making us know that maybe New York and the way that things progress there, maybe that's an outlier. Yeah. And maybe other states have the ability to function in a more normal way than maybe we thought at first without creating some sort of apocalypse to where things are just out of control, hospitals overwhelmed, things like that. Maybe you can reasonably trust people to go out to restaurants or go out to vote or to do these things and take the precautions that you're being told to take, whether it's masks or six feet or whatever the case may be, and society can function a little bit better. And it kind of trends toward that uh, perspective on things. And so hopefully these openings up that we're doing in Texas and other places will show similar results to what we saw in Wisconsin. Yeah, and you, 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 know, you saw a lot of the footage from Wisconsin and people were really taking it seriously. You're talking, there's second, you know, at least six feet, if not 10 feet away, the lines, yeah. 100 people line is going way down the street. And I guess like in reality, if we live that way, we probably never would need a lockdown. But is that realistic? I mean, you know, the bottom line is when we when we start letting uh, letting off uh, the the gas a little bit here when it comes to, to lockdowns, we're going to get some people who are going to ignore uh, ignore it. Uh, those people are going to be in a situation in a later time where they're with someone else who didn't make that choice. And this is how the stuff flares up. I mean, I think that's the argument of people who are saying we're, we're opening up uh, this whole thing too fast. Yeah, and there's no good answer in response to that because with something like this, I don't think there's any way that you can guarantee that we ha all have protection from it because there are variables, there are people who are going to do their own thing. And there are limits to how much you can protect yourself if you choose to leave the house, if you choose yeah. to interact with other people. But at some point, I think we're kind of looking for the best solution that we can make, the best steps that we can take right now. And it's not going to be a perfect one. So you have to look at it and say, OK, at least until maybe we get not a vaccine, because that's probably going to take too long, but a reasonable treatment or a better idea of how to treat this. 
for people. And then maybe if we can keep these guidelines in place to where we're taking these precautions until then, you know, it's still a delaying game. You know, the shutdowns was a delay game. Yeah. The social distancing can be another little bit of you're delaying, you know, any potential larger outbreaks until you can handle it better. And I think we have, we can't, obviously we can't stay locked down forever. So you do have to find a way, how can we gradually ease this down? And hopefully we can convince people to still take reasonable precautions you know, for a little bit, a little while longer for their safety and others. Uh, and, and I think that's that's I keep coming back to the same thing, which is we, we we're, we're all struggling to try to understand this. And I think I see some people out there like, oh, close the thing down for multiple years. And it's like, come on, that's yeah. not realistic. And I think there's other people who are just like, oh, it's just, you know, it's, it's just a, basically the common cold. Neither one of these are right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you look at this and, and you have to. There's been issues, I think, on both sides. I, I cite this poll often because I find it completely fascinating how, how recent it was. But at m- mid-March, 87% of people believe there'd be 10,000 deaths or less. 87%. It's hard to find. You can't get people to agree on that, you know, 87% on anything. Right. Um, and then here we are at a place where there's already 60,000. I remember when Trump came out there and he said, uh, the deaths are going to be minimum 100,000. I thought he was bonkers. I thought that whole thing was crazy. I mean, especially with the ones they haven't counted yet, we're almost, I mean, we've got a good chance of getting there. God forbid, I hope we don't. Mm. On the other side, though, the, the, uh, the hospitalization numbers that we were pitched at the beginning of this were bonkers as yeah. well. Just they as haven't bonkers. even come close. Uh, not even close. These hospitals were not overrun. It seems like it was a real problem in the CDC data. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't, like, it, it's, it's so difficult about a situation like this. That was really what we were protecting against. It's not what happened, yet we still got the deaths on pace with it happening. And so it's like it's an impossible thing to balance here. I don't know. It's so hard to attack because the the problems seem to change every other day. Yeah. And I think part of the problem goes to we put a lot of trust in these models. And anybody who knows anything about the models is telling us, hey, you've got to limit how much you really trust these things because no one listens to that, though. Yeah, I know they don't. (laughs) They just take it as like, oh, 60,000 deaths. So that's where it's going to be exactly. And if it doesn't happen like that, then people are upset. But everybody knows everybody who handles those models knows that it's it's a projection. They put in some data, they put in some assumptions and they project what's going to happen. You put in a little bit more data, it changes again. But we've reported these numbers in the media so much that people cling on to them and it either causes panic or some people look at it and say, well, it's so sensational. Maybe the whole thing is a hoax. And so you put that out there and we have these extreme reactions and it's so hard to find a middle ground to where we can compromise on this thing to now where if you say, oh, well, maybe this thing isn't as bad as we thought it was. People look at you like you want to kill their grandfather. Yeah. Or, you know, they're saying we should be locked down for two years. And th- we're talking past each other on these two sides. And that's why it's so divisive with what we're going to do next. Yeah, I think a lot of it, too, is just people are really awful. Um, yeah, that's a lot that's, of the time. That's actually the source of the problem. Yeah. <laughs> well, like, I, I am just amazed, like, you know, the, the, the stat of 87 percent thought it was less than 10,000. The 13 percent, they're all on Twitter. Everyone who is right <laughs> is on Twitter. Yeah. Every single person knows everything that's going to happen. If we had just listened to every individual person on Twitter, we would be completely fine. Um, and I, I like I find this to be one of those situations where that's not a great approach. This no. is not you know, this is it's not a partisan issue. It's not it's not like that. And I think one of the problems is this desire. We, we expect our leaders to just know everything and to say things definitively. Mm-hmm. And so our leaders then respond to that by trying to make definitive statements about what's going to happen and what how, what's going to work, what's not going to work. And then when they're wrong, they're scared to say they're wrong because they're scared to be punished. And so people, ha- they're forced to be so inflexible. And so if you come out and you lock down the whole country because of the data that you had at the time, and that turns out to be a, maybe a terrible idea because you didn't need to do that. 
Well, now it's hard to turn that and just say, you know what, we, we overreacted. You don't hear anybody admit that. You hear them kind of spin it and yeah. gradually turn it, and mm -hmm. that, that kind of hurts your ability to adapt to the situation as well. And I think it's just hard for somebody like President Trump to say, okay, I, I told everybody that you should say 10 people or less and all that stuff. It's hard for him to come out and then say, you know what, I looked at the data at the time and it said this and now it says something else and so maybe we should have done something. He's not going to come right. out and say that there's no because there's so much political loss that would happen if he did that and that's hurting this response because it's a public health situation that has so much political stakes that it's hard to balance those two things. All right, let me ask you a, a question that's usually reserved for small talk before we go on the air. Oh. What are you doing this weekend? You what going am I out? doing this weekend? No, I'm not. I'm not going out. I'm going to try to get a haircut. I might try to do that. Well, that can, doesn't start for a couple weeks. You got a couple weeks before the haircut weeks. thing kicks in. Well, I think that should be first. I mean, it's it's getting pretty bad. <laughs> yeah, here, yours looks good <laughs> compared to mine. I was like, I was shaggy all over the place. No, I'm not scared to go to restaurants or anything. You know, I yeah. think I, 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 I like to do that, but I'm not going to rush out there. You know, to, first weekend's just going to be annoying because everyone's going to be piling in. Yeah, I'm seeing some people talking. About, I got reservations on Friday. And I did. Like, I, oh, I had well, to look, do it. You're one of those guys. I went on open table. They had a science denier. That's me. That's me. All right, Aaron Cole, another from the Blaze. .com and CEO of America. Uh, are you going to congratulate me? Oh, yeah, congratulations. Thank you. All right, we're back in a second. <laughs> Ari Shulman is the editor of The New Atlantis. He joins us now. Uh, Ari, uh, you guys have really kind of taken the lead, I think, in trying to understand the scope of COVID-19 and how... It compares to other causes of death and trying to really, I think, lock these numbers down because they're sort of hard to pin down at times. Um, you guys have uh, 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 we're going to show some of the charts that you guys have been producing and they're, and they're great. Um, can you kind of walk me through the process of how you put all this together? Yeah, so we've been seeing a lot of people who are trying to, uh, you know, to put the deaths in context by comparing them to seasonal flu or to car crashes or to past pandemics. And the biggest problem with these comparisons, I thought, was that they were comparing the span of an entire year to something that has been happening very rapidly over the span of just a few weeks. And if you were to follow the numbers, you could see them increasing very, very rapidly in a way that most causes of death don't, and even that uh, past contagious diseases don't. You know, the fundamental difference between a contagious disease and, say, uh, drowning in a pool, as Dr. Uh, Dr. Phil was comparing it to is that it spreads and it can grow very quickly. And that was the main reason for concern. So we decided to just go back to these past data sources and look at this and put this all together and see how much worse is it now? How much faster is it growing? So we picked a few of the most common points of comparison, uh, seasonal flu, car crashes, and uh, a past especially bad pandemic, which was the 1957 flu pandemic. And we just put it all together and charted it. And really what you found is that, at least for the past few weeks, uh, COVID-19 is basically the biggest killer of uh, human beings in, in, in the country. Yeah, there are all sorts of uh, cautions that have to be put on that kind of a statement because uh, it, it takes a while for all of the data to come in. Mm -hmm. So what we were actually doing is comparing COVID-19 to past years. Um, but if you look at those past years, there's not very much variation in that. So we have a very good understanding of how many people we would normally expect to be dying from heart disease, cancer, all of these other causes. And what we found was that, uh, yeah, when we first charted this, and especially now, uh, there are more people dying from COVID-19 than we would expect to die from heart disease, which is normally the leading cause of death. That's a shocking thing. And, and I think it's, um, it is, it's tough. I think conservatives in particular have had a tough time dealing with this data. Um, and, you know, I think part of it is 
Um, there's just a general skepticism over stuff like this. And I think, you know, conservatives are typically more like, all right, calm down, relax. You know, we're moving on with our lives. We're moving forward. Um, I don't find necessarily a a warm response from talking about these types of things uh, to the right. And which is a strange thing because, you know, the president has been, you know, look, he's the guy who put the six weeks of shutdown in. I mean, he's he's been the one doing the recommendations. Um, so it is a it's a strange sort of uh, an issue. And I, I don't I, I've had trouble um, communicating it with people on the right because they de- they typically will come back to me and say, well, you know, um, you know, they're miscategorizing all these deaths. They're counting deaths that were really flu deaths as covid deaths. They're, they there's always you know, there's yeah, there's 60,000. But that's just as much as the flu last year. How do you how do you put this stuff in perspective? Yeah, it, it's complicated because for all of those criticisms, there's usually some measure of truth to them. But what we're looking at here is not a um, science says or you must follow the data sort of situation, right, where you have absolutely incontrovertible, uh, unassailable, uh, unassailable facts and you have to simply accept them on face value. You can pick all sorts of nits with them. And you can do that in both directions. So there are probably some people who are dying from COVID who may have died anyway, either at that time or in the future. On the other hand, we know that there are a lot of people who are dying from COVID who are not getting counted in those stats because they're not being tested when they die in the hospital uh, or at home. Um, And so there are a lot of different ways that you can look at to try to estimate these things. And you put them all together and you make a prudential judgment. And the things that I look at, for example, are the excess mortality figures. If you look at those in the state of New York, in Michigan, in Louisiana, you know there's a very kind of normal seasonal curve that you get of the number of people you expect to die at any point in the year. Those numbers are going way up. Uh, In some places, they're something like double what they would normally be. And when you have something like that, you just can't explain that as people who were going to die anyway. Uh, And so, you know, you you have to exercise some caution in looking at the data. It's difficult to make precise estimates. You know that the figures that are available now are not exactly what they're going to be in the future. But you put this all together. And the question is, are we interested in getting a precise, accurate count and then kind of picking nits in what we are being told? Uh, Or do we really want to understand? on a broad order of magnitude way, is this something that is really bad? And it seems very clear to me that it is something that is quite bad and unusual. Uh, it's, it certainly is. Um, I, I, I keep going back to um, t- thinking about this as, you know, when you talk about the excess mortality, I think it's the best way to measure it. It was actually when, when this all started off, I was I, I like desperate to be a skeptic on this. Like, I really want to be there. <laughs> Frankly, I would love to be at the place where I believe this was not going on. Um, and I've, I've been uh, at the beginning, one of the one of the I thought somewhat uh, theoretically possible arguments was this idea that maybe we didn't know about this. It was around for a long time. And, you know, maybe it was around for six months or eight months and we didn't know about it. We hadn't diagnosed it yet. So that's why the we didn't have any cases then. But people were dying from and they were counting it as flu or influenza or, or, or uh, uh, you know, any one of uh, pneumonia, whatever it was. And early on, uh, someone who a friend of mine who's pretty skeptical on this stuff said, well, you got to look at the all cause mortality. You got to wait for just to see if that goes up. And so we we did wait. And now that data has come out and now it's showing exactly what they said would happen if this was real. And I feel like we just keep getting these moving goalposts like now. Well, you know, 50,000 isn't enough when 10,000 two months ago would have been crazy. Uh, There's Mm -hmm. no way to, like, establish a standard here that will get people to uh, to 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 see this, I feel like, as serious as it is. 
Yeah, it's it's a good point. It's it's very difficult to argue about these things. You know, I keep saying that this is a situation where you have to exercise judgment and prudence and sense because you're dealing with so many uncertainties and you're dealing with so many conflicting data sources and so many conflicting kind of considerations. But there's no one thing that you can point to and say, this is it. This is incontrovertible. You're not going to be able to poke any holes in this because anything you look at, you can poke holes in. So the question is, when you're looking at the data, what is your motivation? Is your interest in... Uh, questioning whether the person that is making a statement is 100% right about what they're saying and that there's no, uh, you know, no problems that can be found in it? Or are you trying to find the best course of action given a profound amount of uncertainty that we are facing? Because I, I think that the situation continues to be one where there's more uncertainty than certainty. And so it's the latter that is the standpoint that I'm trying to approach this from. We've encountered this all the time. You know, we posted this, this chart, which maybe you're going to show on your uh, show, which has become one of the most widely read things that our, our journal has ever published. And we've received uh, a lot of praise for it and a lot of pushback for it also. And I've encountered the same phenomenon that you're talking about, where there seems to be a sort of infinitely receding series of goalposts. And we have to make prudential judgments ourselves about how much do we want to try to respond to them, which of these are reasonable concerns that are well-motivated, and which of them are simply motivated by never being penned down and always trying to find some new standard to come to. And it's a hard balance to strike. And I can, you know, I can tell you more about some of the criticisms that we've gotten on this that we are planning to answer and we've been working on responding to. Okay, so I think that's a, that's a worthwhile exercise because some of the questions are, you know, real. Like until all this started, I don't think I really understood comorbidity, right? Like, the, you, you know, the, the, the flu, the flu is a great example of this. I've been saying that the flu kills 50,000 people a year for forever, and you don't realize that that does in your head. That means 50,000 people are dropping dead. Of course, they also have other things. Every almost everybody who dies has another factor in their mm-hmm. death, um, you know, and and how um, uh, not, you know, it's not exactly foundationally solid that that number. I mean, the estimate is something like 24 to 60,000. It's a really wide range they have for the flu. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and a lot of that is because they're not there's not 50,000 death certificates out there that say influenza like there are projections in, involved here with covid. It's it's actually much more uh, solid. They have gone through and they have tested most of these people or a lot of the people that they counted as covid deaths. There are some that they also believe go the other way. Um, but th- because of all that uncertainty, there's the point that gets brought up a lot to me is we can't make these types of, you know, national changes that will, you know, get, will reverberate through our society for many, many years to come without good data. If I'm telling you I don't have perfect data, how can we even make these judgments? Uh, again, the answer is in most public policy questions, you have to act without perfect data and you have to settle for a good enough standard. And I think looking at this data, the data is much beyond good enough to assess that this is uh, something far beyond um, ordinary for for flu, for example. This is something much worse than even a bad flu season. And the best data for looking at that is the all-cause mortality. That's complicated by the fact that all causes includes everything. And we know that the lockdown is affecting deaths in other ways. So, for example, um, we know that deaths from homicide are down. We know that deaths from car crashes are down. So that may be actually be concealing the number of COVID deaths. We also know that deaths from other causes are probably up because people are not getting treated for things that they would otherwise be getting treated for. But when you put that all together, you look at the all-cause mortality in somewhere like New York City, right, which has been hardest hit. Mm -hmm. Uh, They had something like four times, three or four times what you would expect. If I'm I'm remembering this off the top of my head, the New York Times published this graphic. They were showing the monthly all-cause mortality going back to 2000. 
On the left side of the graph, you see this moderate spike, and that's 9-11. And then on the right side of the graph, you see the last month or two, and it's three or four times higher than that 9-11 spike. So however, whatever quibbles you can offer about the data there, and there are quibbles that you can offer, none of them amount to explaining that away as uh, something not having to do with the pandemic disease. It's the only explanation for a spike of that kind. And all of those quibbles are going to do is to uh, quibble at the margins about exactly how big the degree is. And when that's your quibble, that doesn't really matter very much for talking about courses of action. That may matter for if you want to get a really, really solid count for the record books later, but it doesn't matter very much in terms of the course of action we need to take right now. All right, let's talk about that course of action real quick. We've got about a minute and a half. Um, you know, there is yeah. some point where we got to open this thing up and do stuff, right? We, we, can't, we can't be in this constant shutdown forever. Um, it's, it's just not plausible. Um, I, you know, some step, states, I'm in Texas, we're taking steps like, uh, you know, 25% capacity, outdoor seating at restaurants for a couple weeks, kind of watching it and seeing what happens. Is that the right thing to do? Poke our, our nose out of the door a little bit and, and, and judge uh, the results? What do, you, what do you feel the right course of action is? Well, the right course of action has always been to have a system in place to uh, to replace the lockdown, essentially a testing, tracing and isolating system that will allow you to keep the pandemic under control and to know when it's getting out of control and what measures to take when it's getting out of control in a local area without having to resort to a lockdown. A lockdown should have never happened if we had a capable testing and tracing regimen in the in the first place. It would have never gotten to this point in so many places. And we would have never had to do what we've now had to do, which is to lock down in places that really are not being that hard hit. Mm -hmm. And the reason we have to do that is that we simply don't have a clear picture of what's going on there. And by the time it does get out of control, uh, it's, it's too late to do anything other than do the lockdown. And so by lifting lockdowns now without an aggressive testing regimen in place, you're, you're rolling the dice. Maybe you'll get lucky and you won't get a severe outbreak there, but maybe you will. And then you'll have to do a lockdown again unless you have some other option in place. And the risk is of just having this sort of yo-yo effect. So I, I understand the desire to lift. I would like the lockdowns to be lifted as well. The answer to all of this is an aggressive testing and tracing regimen. And we still have very little sense of whether the, the federal government has a plan in place to make that happen soon. Well, I'm, I'm gaining weight at about five pounds a week. So any more lockdown is going to be a real <laughs> so problem. <am> I. <laughs> Everybody's at this. Yeah. I'm eating my pain away here, Ari, and it's not a good idea. That's right. <laughs> um, this is, uh, I guess, the most re- read piece you've ever had at the, at the New Atlantis. And it's a, it's a really interesting perspective. It's important information. Even though it sucks to look at it, it's worth doing. Uh, the New Atlantis is where you need to go. Ari Shulman is the editor. Uh, Ari, thanks so much for doing this. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me again. All right. Back in a second. We're just really beating you up with graphs today. Data. I know. It kind of sucks. It's a little depressing. I'll, I'll give you that. I think maybe tomorrow, maybe we should just have like a Freedom Friday tomorrow. No COVID talk. I mean, I'm going out to dinner after that show tomorrow. Dinner out at a restaurant. It's going to be crazy. Uh, so maybe tomorrow we'll do that. Well, so we'll just bash you with it today and then make it nice and sweet tomorrow. Here are the graphs we were talking about with uh, Ari Shulman just a second ago. This is one he's produced for, um, for New York. And you see the the reported new deaths um, in New York. Now, again, New York City is the worst case scenario, right? It's our biggest city and it's really dense. But you see the covid deaths going up not only above way, way, way above the 2017 and 18 uh, flu and pneumonia, but all the way north of all deaths from all causes. 
uh, during the flu season. So car accidents, heart attacks, cancer, everything. It not only passed in like week three or four, passed all deaths and has now gone you know, well above that. You'll see, though, it's come back down the other way. And that's important. Um, you, you know, as much as our lives have sucked over the past few weeks, it really has made a difference. Uh, the data is pretty clear on that. And it's clear all across all across the, the world. Um, let me see the, uh, the United States here. Now, this is another uh, uh, graph they put together. Again, I'll walk you through it if you're uh, listening on audio as well. The very bottom, you see a line for car crashes that is very, very low. Um, flu is measured in various different ways. Um, uh, when you combine flu and pneumonia, it's, it's, it's about middle of the chart. You see the 1957-58 Asian flu, which was a really bad one. That one's kind of in the middle of the, the chart as well. And then you see the same you know, scary COVID line that goes all the way up, goes um, about three weeks ago hits the line uh, tied with heart disease as the leading uh, cause of death in America. Uh, And that's an average line for heart disease there at the very top. And for the past three weeks, it's been the leading cause of death in the country. Now, if it comes back down and goes away, it's a totally different situation. But think about this. This has happened with us all at our houses, not interacting with other people. You know, who knows what it would have been if we did absolutely nothing And of course, absolutely nothing has never been a realistic scenario. We all would have at least uh, done social distancing and stayed away from each other and washed our hands a lot more. There was always been something done. Um, One of the other graphs we talked about was uh, was talking about uh, the excess deaths in the United States. And here's kind of a representation of what we're talking about when they talk about undercounting how many people right now in New York City. um, This is and this only goes to mid-April. So this doesn't even include some of the worst weeks. But New York City had an excess death amount of about 12,000. About 10,000 of those have been marked COVID so far. But there's another 1,700 that they can't quite explain yet. New Jersey, the gap is 3,000. Um, uh, the uh, state uh, of New York, in- excluding New York City, is another 1,700. Michigan, 600. Illinois, 700. Massachusetts and Maryland, 500. Colorado, 300. You know, they're seeing these deaths go up. They have no other explanation other than COVID. As of right now, those aren't counted. But at some point, a lot of those are going to come into the into the column. Uh, and that's not going to be pretty. Um, and you'll, the thing about this, too, is you're seeing it all around the world. And I, I do keep uh, struggling with the idea of how, you know, if we're if we're just miscounting deaths, how the entire world got fooled by this. But here's what it looks like. Um, you see a spike not of equal size in every you see Italy's is much worse than than other countries. But right around the same time, you know, March into April, the same spike, way out of line with normal, every single country on the map. There's four, uh, th- they have 13 countries combined. The average excess death amount of, for all causes is 49%. You know, countries just don't get 49% death spikes for a month for no reason. You know, this is way out of the norm of all statistics they've kept for a very, very long time. That does not change, I don't think, the way we have to handle this. We still have to, I'm still going to a freaking restaurant tomorrow. We have to be able to, to open up the economy. We've had time to build up our resources. We've had time to learn more about this. We're going to inch our noses out and hopefully not screw it up so we're not back in this situation again. I think that's the right way to handle it. It's a, it sucks. To be clear, it sucks. I hate all of this. But I also want to make sure that you know we do this the right way. And if we do... Hopefully we can get back to to normal again. Back in a second. I hereby declare tomorrow Freedom Friday. 
I think we avoid most of the COVID stuff tomorrow, maybe all of it, and just celebrate the fact that at least we're, we're able to open up our doors a little bit uh, and enjoy a restaurant or something, anything, anything other than more Netflix. I've watched it all. <laughs>